0: Alright, what is up everybody? Welcome back to the John Q. Public Podcast Show, Episode 6 and Part 2 of our series on the Federal Reserve scam <laughs> as I like to call it. Um, you know, it, it could be controversial. You know, I, I think most people just go about their day, right? Dealing with money, finances, everything, and not really thinking about, you know, how it all works or anything like that, which, you know, is, is fine. But for someone like me that loves a good conspiracy theory, loves, you know, to look at historical stuff, you know, read, dive into stories that maybe, you know, aren't, you know, aren't that widely discussed or whatever it might be, you know, as a pretty conservative person, uh, I am very much for, you know, free market, less government, you know, all that stuff. And the Federal Reserve of the United States is an example of, you know, using government as a weapon against its citizens. Um, The creation of a, a national bank is dangerous and it has proven dangerous you know time and time again when we look at the amount of recessions that have happened since 1913 particularly like if we use you know 2008 as a a fine example that's a direct result of bad banking practices bad lending practices right and impacting things on a national scale and it doesn't have to be that way. The The Federal Reserve of the United States should not exist. In good conscience, as a normal person, it should not exist, right? So for part two here of our series, I want to go through just a little bit more on kind of like the, the history of the establishment, kind of finish our conversation, um, you know, about the the Jekyll Island crew and everything that they were going through um, with Morgan and Rothschild and involving, you know, Senator Aldrich at the time and some of that, right, because the Jekyll Island gang was going to need Congress to be involved to pass legislation to make this whole thing happen. So in 1910 right? The most common cause of a bank having to declare bankruptcy due to currency drain was that its loan policy was too reckless, right? More money would be demanded from the bank because more money was loaned by the bank, right? Lending at a, at a 90% clip of assets uh, was dangerous enough and it, and you have to think about too the the money that the bank physically has right it's a reflection of the customer's savings accounts that are there for the most part right um, you know because back then right people keep money in savings right the idea is that you're you're not going to savings unless there was an absolute emergency or maybe you were, quote, saving up for a vacation or or whatever. So, you know, people aren't going into their savings, but, you know, once in a great while, right? So if a bank is keeping only $1 in reserve out of, you know, every 10, right, that's a risky proposition. But then you've got banks, right, that they walk even closer to the edge, right, 92%, 95%, 99%, right? The way that banks make money at the time, right, because we don't have credit cards and some of that other stuff, right, is with interest from loans, right? The more loans, the better. And so there was this practice among some of the more reckless banks to, quote, loan up, as they would call it, which was essentially pushing down any reserves that you might have. So if all banks could be forced to issue loans in the same ratio to the reserves as other banks did, then regardless of how small the ratio was, the amount of checks to be cleared between them, it would balance out in the long run, right? No major currency drains would ever be, you know, dealt with. The the whole banking industry might collapse, but not individual banks, at least the ones that were part of the cartel, right? Everybody walks the same distance from the edge, no matter how close it was. And in a system of such uniformity, right, no individual bank is then blamed for failure to meet obligations. Right? We can shift the blame to the economy or government policy or interest rates or you know, any number of things, or trade deficits, the the dollar value exchange, right? Or to just the system of capitalism itself. Does that sound familiar right now that we are hearing from people who favor big government? So in nineteen ten, right, we didn't have this bankers utopia. Yet, right? If Bank A was loaning at a greater ratio to reserve than its competitors, the amount of checks which that would come in to the bank would, you know, be greater, right? The bank then would be, you know, of the mindset to maybe pursue more reckless lending policy to draw against reserves that it has in order to make payments to the more conservative banks. And then when those funds got exhausted, the bank would then be forced into bankruptcy. Uh, there's a historian uh, named John Klein who, you know, brought up the, the, the point of the financial panics that happened in 1873, 84, 93, and 1907 were the result of this reserve pyramiding and excessive deposit creation. The panics were triggered by currency drains that took place in economic periods of prosperity when banks were loaned up, right? So these, quote, panics and bank failures were caused not by, you know, negativity from the economy itself, but currency drains on the banks, that were loaned up to the point of, you know, having no reserves. The banks didn't, and I like the way that you know that he put it, uh, the banks didn't fail because the system was weak. The system failed because banks were weak, right? There was no there was no reason for banks to be conservative enough to protect not having the money to pay up what was needed to be paid up, right? So, you know, this was another big problem that brought the Jekyll Island crew together, right? They're all competitors. And, right, they're thinking about the panics and the over 1,700 bank failures of the previous two decades. And they're looking at it like we need to join forces, right? We needed to devise a method to enable ourselves to continue to make more promises to pay on demand than we could actually keep, right? And the way that you do that is the creation of the central bank where you have fiat, fake currency, right? That you can print in infinitum, right? No limit whatsoever. And... That's what's, you know, inflated things over time, you know, over a thousand percent over the last hundred plus years. And it's just been a disaster. Right. But so for them, right, to do this, they had to find a way to force all the banks into the same system. Right. That way, when disaster happened. They can shift blame away from themselves. Right. Make it appear that there's a problem with the economy rather than their banking practices. So then you open the door for the use of tax dollars rather than their own money to pay off the losses. Pretty, pretty eye-opening because that's what's happening, right? 2008, financial crisis. Government bailout. Who paid for the bailout tax dollars? Where does tax dollars come from? us as tax-paying citizens. And that's just one example, right? So they had a handful of challenges, okay? Number one, stop the small banks, right? And make sure that they've got control over the nation's financial resources, right? These seven people, who have aligned their interests to make it happen, right? Number two, how do we pool the reserves of banks across the nation into one large reserve so that all banks then are motivated to follow the same loan-to-deposit ratios, right? You've got things like the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. wonder how that came about, right? The next thing, how to make the money supply more elastic, right? And this would be to reverse the trend of private capital formation, right? Where people are say, self-funding out of profits and, and different things, right? And then recapture the industrial loan market, right? Make it more enticing for people to borrow the money with interest than to use their own profits at no interest and fund things. Also, right, should this whole system that they're establishing, right, if it leads to collapse of the whole banking system, right? They want to make sure they shift those losses from the owners of the banks to the taxpayers, right? Does this sound familiar? It's happened more than once over the last 110 years. So then, right? How do we convince Congress that this scheme was a tool to protect the public, right? It had already been put into place in Europe with things like the Central Bank of England, right? And as you would see with any cartel, right, it had to be created by legislation and sustained by the power of the government under deceptive wording and processes to put it out there as we're protecting the consumer, right? Huge objective there, right? To convince Congress, to convince the people that this is in their best interest, right? American people don't like the idea of a cartel, right? Right? Business enterprises joining together to fix prices and prevent competition. This is the exact opposite of free enterprise, which is what the United States is built on. You couldn't sell this to voters. No. No, you couldn't. But if this could be described with words that are, you know, neutral, that don't channel up too much emotion, right? Or make it seem interesting or to draw people in, right? That's that's like half the battle or maybe over half the battle, right? So... They're going to use the model that was created over in Europe, right? Europe and those countries and those economies have been around significantly longer than the United States, right? So let's use what has been there before. So they're going to operate as a central bank. They're not going to call it a central bank, right? Uh, Because for, you know, that would be, you know, a PR nightmare, right? You can't pass legislation, right? That's just not, that's not going to do it, right? They're going to avoid the term bank, even though we might call it the Federal Reserve Bank, right? That's not officially what they call it, right? So they would use this image of federal, right? Of the federal government right they're not they have nothing to do with each other at all the reserve the federal reserve bank is not has nothing to do with our government whatsoever right but that's how they present it right so they need to create the impression that there actually wouldn't be any concentration of power right they're going to have regional branches right and that that's like a huge selling point right so you've got like your Federal Reserve of, you know, Minneapolis or, you know, San Francisco or, you know, like they branch it out, right? Um, so Aldrich, the senator at the time, right, his idea, right, is, hey, let's have not one central bank, right, but many locations and not use the word bank at all, right? And everybody that's present there, right, they are all bankers. Paul Warburg, right, expert on the European model, right? He was the one who kind of led the discussion and everything right here. The, you know, the leader in the creation of the Federal Reserve System here in the United States. Right? And... You know, the Federal Reserve Act stemmed from what Paul Warburg was pushing, right? He was the leading member of an investment banking firm from Germany in the Netherlands. He came to the United States, I think, in like 1900, something like that, right? And he aligned himself with the Rothschilds Group him and his brother, you know, and they bought up part of kuhn Leb and company and, you know, maintained his partnership in the Warburg group and Hamburg. And he eventually, uh, I want to say around like 1930, right, he was one of the wealthiest men in America, and completely dominated our railroad system railroad infrastructure right and he was extremely important to shaping economically how things went in this country banking right um if you think of uh daddy Warbucks from uh from the comic books little orphan Annie right that's your guy right um And so Paul Warburg and his family, right, and he becomes well-known, right, Wall Street and, and everything, right? He's an advocate for the central bank in America. He published a lot of articles and went through a lot of things, right? And his argument was, right, America needed an elastic money supply that could be expanded and contracted to accommodate how commerce goes, right? Does this sound familiar to everybody, right? He proposes, right? Let's just follow the example in Germany. In Germany at the time, right, banks could create currency on the basis of, quote, commercial paper. And all this means is it's an IOU from a corporation, right? Warburg is just going and going and going on this, right? He did speaking engagements on it. He published in the New York Times and several articles, right? And talking all about the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, right? And for most people, right, at the time, like they read it, they don't think much about it. And I think most people in general probably don't still to this day, like banking just is what it is, right? When the system has been around so long and you're born into that system, you don't, th- it's all you know, right? Nobody, nobody knows what it was like before the Federal Reserve existed, right? So through this whole process, right, the central bank, right, they're just kind of legalizing cartel activity, right? So they need to lay down like some, some, Technical aspects of this, right? Focusing on how it's going to benefit commerce. It's going to benefit the public. It's going to benefit, you know, our country in general. Bring interest rates down, right? Funding for industry and infrastructure. Prevent economic panic. But underneath it all was this master plan designed to be a top down serving private interests at the expense of the general public. Does this sound familiar at all? We are living that nightmare right now. Right? And all these guys that are bankers, right? Aldrich comes to the table in 1911, I believe, in front of the American Bankers Association. And he says, quote, the organization proposed is not a bank, but a cooperative union of all the banks of the country for definite purposes, a union of banks. Right. And. He goes on not long after, I don't it was like a year or two later, right, he's a He's, again, in front of the bankers, Chase National Bank. And he says, the measure recognizes and adopts the principles of a central bank. Indeed, if it works out, as the sponsors of the law hope, it will make all incorporated banks together joint owners of a central dominating power. That is the pure definition of a cartel, right? So, the accepted version of history with this whole thing is that the Federal Reserve was created to provide stabilization to our economy, right? That it it came out of the panic of 1907, the bank failures, et cetera, right? That the company, the country was fed up once and for all with the anarchy of private banking. That it would be too unstable, right? But anybody with some common sense can see the contradiction here, right? Since the inception of the Federal Reserve Act, 1913, okay, the Federal Reserve of the United States, okay, crashes of 1921 and 29, the Great Depression of 29 to 39, multiple recessions between 1953 and 75, uh, 1981, right, black market. Our stock market, Black Monday at 87. We've had over a thousand percent inflation in the last 110 years, right? Inflation, at the very simplest explanation, is it means it takes more dollars, Federal Reserve notes, to purchase something, right? A loaf of bread, right? A hundred years ago. I don't know, what, say it costs five cents, right? Now it costs two bucks, you know, maybe a little bit less, right? Uh, Here's an example, right? So we'll, and I, I think we use it. So in 1990, right? So this is, you know, this is 30 years ago, right? It took ten thousand dollars of purchasing power what took a thousand dollars in 1914 right so actions have consequences right we are living the consequences of you could call it wealth confiscation, right? Federal Reserve. You've got personal debt. It's the highest it's ever been, right? We've got student loan debt, credit card debt, right? The vast majority of credit cards come from banks, right? And if you think about where we're at right now, right? That's a scary thought. So that's kind of the, you know, between uh, the previous episode and this episode, I hope we laid a good foundation for, where this came from, you know, why it was created, right? And you can kind of see here how over time this has worked against the American people, right? When an entity has no reason to limit the amount of currency it sends into an economy, right, because they don't the the federal reserve doesn't have a limit and the people that control the federal reserve remember the federal reserve is not number one it's not named correctly right the federal aspect of things is just there to again smoke screen it's a private entity that prints currency for an economy right If the Federal Reserve wanted to, it could stop printing currency, but it won't because the Federal Reserve collects a significant amount of interest from the United States to send them that money and put that money into the economy, right? Um, You know, we can, we'll get the debt ceiling and some of that stuff, but, you know, the debt ceiling will never come down because of the way that the system is set up. So you'll hear politicians talk about, you know, we got to raise the debt ceiling and, and all that stuff or, you know, or catastrophe would happen, which is not the case. That's just, you know, fear tactics, right, that are there. So, you know, this is a really nasty situation that we've been put in over time. And for 110 years now, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse over time because you've got an entity that can print currency with no limits whatsoever. And the more of something that there is in currency, the less value that it has, right? And that's where, that's why when things get inflated, right, they'll level off for a while, but then inevitably something happens and we go through these periods of time where significantly more currency is created, makes it less valuable, right? It levels off again, right, but but it requires More and more money as time goes on, right? And if enough time goes on, it will be at a point, right, where we're paying $15 for a loaf of bread, right? Where we're paying $8 a gallon for gasoline. It's just simple economics. And I know that there's a lot more to it. But hopefully, these first couple episodes here in this series have been informative. Um, in the next episode that comes along, we'll get into some of the mechanics of things, how, you know, how it's going right now, where we're at, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Talk about how this truly continues to scam the American public, right? And it only works for those who are in control of the supply on that so again thanks for listening to the john q public podcast show and we will catch you on the next one thanks take care